Welcome to Surviving Society, a political podcast from a sociological perspective. Uh, we are at the BSA, it's day two, and we are joined by Doran Wallace, who is based at... Brandeis. Brandeis University, which is in Boston. Boston, um, Massachusetts, uh, Massachusetts not Boston in the Midlands. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, not the Midlands. <laughs> Most certainly not. Is Doran our first American, like, American-based? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Welcome. This is really exciting. I don't know if I should celebrate. I don't really try to associate myself too much with that. I don't know about American, but can you tell us just before we get into the sociology, can you tell sure. us a bit about your journey into being based in America? Oh, that's quite interesting. Um, largely because um, I had so much agency in the process. No, actually, I didn't. Um, <laughs> my, my mother left Jamaica when I was very young, I was seven years old, and I relocated to New York City with. The American Dream, and when I was 15, I reunited with her along with my father and brother. I finished secondary school and, and university there, and then um, got a fellowship that allowed me to do research in parts of East and West Africa. I thought I would study economic development um, and its relationship to education, so I came to Cambridge to study and realized that I didn't do well with positivists, and e economists are usually quite positivist in their analyses, and veered over to uh, complete that master's thought into a PhD program. And uh, I should also say, while doing the PhD program, um, I worked as a community organizer in South London for four years. And so that really ground in me because Cambridge was, I would say, um, how much I put this nicely? Violent? Hostile. <laughs> <laughs> Violent is absolutely um, to be in. And um, I think, in particular, the, the, the tremendous class shock I experienced there um, continues to haunt me today. Someone asked me recently if I could ever write about my experience there. And I was like, I. I wouldn't even want to relive the memories, right, mm -hmm. of the details of that. But what was most striking about it too was not only my experience as a black man of working class heritage, multiply uh, diasporized, right, the, you know, coming from Jamaica, living in New York, coming to to the UK, and connecting with Caribbean communities here. Um, it, it was most striking that people were deeply invested in the class politics. Like they came to Cambridge for the pomp and the circumstance and the opulence. Like that's why they were there for the aged sherry and the wine, that they would email you um, at one and say, they're gonna give away 50-year-old wine, a glass of 50-year-old wine for a pound. When we're driving by homeless people and minoritized folks all across the city of Cambridge and there's no support or help or efforts to reach out um, to those uh, communities, it was just staggering to me. Uh, thankfully, I had a, a really, really beautiful and kind um, then-girlfriend, now-wife, who really told me that um, I should just leave Cambridge and come to South London, and that's what I did, and that's what kept me grounded, and that's what got me to organizing, and um, that's what led me to the academy and brought me back here to the BSA. Oh, that's powerful. That's, that's, that's powerful. so powerful. powerful. Yeah. That's powerful. Really powerful. Lesson, listen to black women. <laughs> listen to black women. Yes, mantra. Brilliant. Yeah, I think it's such an obvious, well, to me, it's really obvious that somewhere like Cambridge would be really hostile towards minoritized populations, towards black people, but yet we still seem to sort of push this agenda. Like I know we've spoken about this a lot on the podcast, that this is a, this is the right place to be sending people who have come from mm, like disadvantaged scholarships. The thing is, pushing. I wouldn't even consider, I would, it wouldn't come into my head, there wouldn't be an option mm. to go to Cambridge, just because we know what it's like. And I wouldn't want to put myself in that environment. So I would never even consider going there. You just do an undergrad or postgrad or 
PhD level because it's just I wouldn't sit in that space. I don't think I would survive. But then it's difficult because, like, if you want to try and make it in the academy, if you want to try and do the work, and places like this have the capacity to fund that work, then I do get it. Like, I can't. I couldn't do it myself, and I can imagine like it. Probably, you probably got PTSD from some of that stuff. Like. It's, Awful, but I can see why that people do go there. Talking about like some rare species or something. Sorry, sorry, no, sorry. But it's, it's quite striking because it's actually um, it's striking on two fronts. One, I, I think it's important to draw a distinction between those of us who come as black international students to, the, okay. to Cambridge yeah. versus those who um, are from the UK going to Cambridge at the undergraduate level. I think those from the UK experience even more significant um, uh, disadvantage than the rest of us who come in through these scholarships and fellowships that have networks to support us. It's just that in some instances we're the only or we're among the few black and brown people as part of those programs, right? Um, but you're absolutely right, Cambridge has a wealth of resources that can make ethnography, if you're an ethnographer like me, that can make your research possible. Um, and I think I mentioned to you before too, I think there are some uh, critical uh, scholars yeah. who are invested in pushing against the academy. So I worked with Diane Ray during my time Ooh, at Cambridge. Legend in the game. And absolute legend. And I think if, if Diane weren't there, I definitely would have left the PhD program at Cambridge, without a doubt. Mm -hmm. But Diane understood that the purpose of being in the academy is to transform it, particularly for those of us who are multiply minoritized. Like she, she fully understood that. She also wrote an, an article, I think it was a, I don't know if it was published in the Guardian or it was, um, was based on a piece she wrote for the Running Me Trust in which she said that the University of Cambridge was institutionally racist. And she said it to me and I was like, I see no lies. Like, what, what, yeah. what, what like, mean, look at admission rates, look at the faculty, there are a whole host of um, structural factors that could justify that argument. She got so many emails from the Cambridge Dons. Yeah, she, that she was yeah. wrong and... Have you listened to our interview with Priya? Well, oh, I wasn't there. Uh, I interviewed Priya Varda Gopal. I have not just yet. Yeah, so the exact same thing happened to Priya Varda when she's But potentially out. worse because Priya Varda is brown. Yeah. So, yeah, she has been. She's, well, I don't want to say because. Listen to the episode, but basically very similar, being critical of the institution, yeah, having yeah. extremely mm -hmm. over violent responses to what she said. Yeah, yeah the protection. This, what's striking though is that what I'm sensing there um, is that there are at Cambridge and a number of other institutions, there's really a critical cadre of not only uh, uh, not only academics um, or lecturers and senior lecturers, but also graduate students who've come together and organized strategically and politically to transform those spaces. And so I feel like going back to Cambridge now, when I hear about things that are happening there, like they just had Angela Davis, that would never happen yeah. in my time when I was there. Yeah. Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, and if it did happen, it would probably be somewhere in some corner with one or two people, right? But this was a, uh, a well-sponsored event. So I think those contexts are changing. Um, yeah. And I think we need to, I suppose, bear that in mind. Uh, and know that folks who do plan on transforming those spaces will meet a critical cadre of activists and scholars who are also invested in the same process. Um, uh, thinking about kind of uh, class and the academy, we were talking about um, what we wanted you to talk about, some of your work about uh, a big concept in sociology at the moment, which is cultural capital. Yeah. What are your thoughts on it? Yeah, so cultural capital is really a mainstay in cultural sociology and sociology of education, and it's a transubstantiated form of economic capital, 
right? Um, uh, as Borgia understood it, it was uh, it comes in three forms: um, embodied, objectified, and institutionalized. The embodied, just to break it down um, a bit, sort of speaks to the durable dispositions of the mind and body. Objectify the cultural goods, the sort of paintings you have in your house, the books you carry, um, uh, the galleries you go to, right? Um, those are objectified forms of cultural capital. And then there's the institutionalized, the academic qualifications, the brand of your degree, right? Um, the official titles you have. All those are institutional forms of, institutionalized forms of cultural capital. Um, is that helpful? Yeah, that's really helpful. So what were you talking about in relation to, what were you talking about in your presentation? What's your, do you have a critique of this? Yeah, or? so, I mean, one way, one entry into it is that is to, to pose the question, what's race got to do with it? What does race have to do with cultural capital? And for a very long time, the, 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 the response from, from, from the tradition in cultural sociology was nothing. Yeah. Cultural capital is race neutral. Because class is race neutral. Uh huh. Sure. But uh, <laughs> yeah. but part of my argument, part of my argument is that actually, um, cultural capital has not been and has never been a race neutral resource. It is almost always racialized, mm -hmm. and even in contexts where um, race is not made explicit, what I've found is that um, traditional or classical forms of cultural capital are often advanced as codes for whiteness. Yeah. And with it too comes a set of deficit logics about black and minority ethnic communities as lacking cultural capital. So you will look across sociological literature in the US, the UK, Canada, Australia, and when they're talking about minoritized population, they'll say part of the reason black and brown kids aren't successful is because they lack cultural capital. They lack the wisdom to negotiate um, uh, these middle-class institutions. And the blame is almost always laid at the feet of these communities and of these young people, not the institutions that they're a part of. But part of the argument I'm making, actually, is that one, cultural capital is not the preserve of white people, right? That there needs to be more research on the black um, and Asian middle classes, not only in Britain, but across the world, actually. Um, that oftentimes, even when we're thinking of the Caribbean or Africa, we, or people from the Caribbean and Africa, we, we, we have a sense that their, their racial identities have a fixed class identity. Yeah. That you must be poor or working class. Yeah, I think this is something we've talked a lot about on the podcast. I mean, I don't know if I've, like, this is something I rant about a lot. I don't know if I've recorded my rants, but, like, in uh, sociology, it's a, and possibly with all academic disciplines, but, like, we go through, like, phases as a, of obsessions with particular white male theorists. Mm. So, like, 80s and 90s, everyone's obsessed with Foucault, and everything's mm. about Foucault, and mm. everything's Foucaultian. And, like, the past 20, 30 years, it's been all about Bourdieu, who's come up with this theory of cultural capital. And, like, I remember doing it undergrad, and it's one of these things you're like, oh, my God, like, you know, this has, like, changed the way I see the world. And, yeah, like, cultural capital, like, I can see that in society. But then when you look at what people who use Bourdieu are doing, yeah, they're always talking about white people. They're always, like, it's a very, uh, in some senses, narrow way of looking at the world. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think it's really important to bring in that like Borgia was not talking about everyone when he was doing this like class like looking at this class analysis, right? Yeah, it's quite interesting. I, I so agree with you about the prominence of Borgia in uh, British sociology. Um, oh yeah, what's the what's the few know, in America? It's, it's, <laughs> I mean I think he you know Borgia is also quite prominent there, but I wouldn't say not quite as much as he is here. Um, and I remember when I started the PhD program, I remember thinking, well, wh wh why is everybody talking about this one social theorist? I don't, I don't understand. So I'd ask about, 
you know, I tried to insert some Stuart Hall. And like, oh, that's curious. Stuart Hall, a sociologist. Like, the man was president of the British Sociological Association. Like, what, what are you talking about? Right? The, he, ha, he was professor of sociology. Um, there was hardly any regard for um, other theories, unless you were studying. Uh, Sen was also very popular, his capability approach. Um, Sen. Um, there's a um, Ricoeur was another very popular one. Um, and I remember at one point thinking, huh, this is a Bourdieu worship ses session, isn't it? Mm. Hail Bourdieu, we thank <laughs> you for the habitus. Yeah. You give us the capital. I'm, like, I'm not part of this. This is not, this is not for me. In, in essence, though, I realized, though, that there has been a tradition of scholars who have been pushing back against this. Um, and that's the tradition I wanted to stand in quite firmly. And so my work builds on research from um, a really um, outstanding sociologist of education, Prudence Carter, um, of the US, who formulated the term black cultural capital. I pick up, too, on the color of extension of that um, in her book, The Color of Class, along with her colleagues. Um, to really think about and to offer a more complex treatment of, of black cultural capital um, that I find to be generative. But the key point I want to get at is that a lot of, sorry, my accent changes, I get passionate. Um, the key thing I'm trying to get at is a lot of people suggest, a lot of traditional class theorists suggest that we don't need to pay attention to race because Bourdieu did it. And there's certain institutions that do that as well, I'm not mentioning any names, but yeah, no so, <laughs> so I actually went back to the archives and looked at Borgia's work in Algeria and in Brazil, his earlier and latter works, to actually note he actually understood race. He spoke and wrote explicitly about, and I quote, racial discrimination, racial segregation. However, the language he deployed around race does not mirror perfectly the language we use for it now. So when you look at his writings in Algeria, he's talking about caste. Okay. He's not talking about race as a category in the ways that we understand it and theorize it now. But they're related, of course, right? And we also see him pick that back up again in his work in, in Brazil, which I find to be quite significant. Not because I'm trying to in any way recover Pierre Bourdieu here as some sort of critical race theorist. He's yeah. absolutely not. But I'm trying to, to push against the claim that one, we can advance a single axis class analysis for understanding inequality, one. Um, two, I'm trying to make the claim that we limit the depth of our class analysis when we ignore race as an enduring social force. Um, and three, that actually our analyses that Bojo had nothing to say about race are entirely ahistorical. Mm. That if we're reading the canon effectively, I'm not saying that it was a significant treatment of his, a significant part of his portfolio, but he had something to say about race. Therefore, don't try to silence the rest of us who have something to say about race and class yeah. by virtue of your misreading of him mm -hmm. in saying that he had nothing to say about race, only about class. Does that make sense? It does make sense. It yeah. does. It does. does make sense. It's powerful. Yeah. You see, I think for someone like myself who, who's been at the academy for a long time and then come back in, I had no idea who would put it nice name. Okay. Yeah, what you see. So but that must have been quite disconcerting. So for me, like, for me, it, it had no bearing. So I'm mm -hmm. when I talk about when I look at like cultural capital, when people broke it down for me, I'm trying to understand it in how it works in the real world. Mm -hmm. So what does what does it mean for me as a black guy? So when I worked in the city, what is cultural capital? I didn't, I didn't understand it, but I pick up on the science. So what university I went. So mm -hmm. for me as a person, a normal person, I understand cultural capital by the how it's embodied in the things I have. Mm -hmm. And for young black men, status is a big thing. So from the jacket I wear, from the trainers that I have, or, or, and these things, I know these signs, these rituals, but it's not 
it was never put to me in those kind of mm. sociological terms. That's right, that's right. I understand it in the, like, if I go to a certain place, how I stand, who I talk to, yeah, yeah, it yeah, means yeah, something yeah. to me. And, and that's how I construct my notion of, of me, a black man. Mm -hmm. And in certain spaces, I know how I stand, how I think people will react to me in a certain way. Mm -hmm. So if I tell someone I have a degree, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a corporate environment, that makes me a unicorn, a novelty. But in a street environment, I don't, I don't speak about those things. Mm -hmm. I just, they look at my clothes, my trains, what I wear, that means something. And it tells you who I am. Yeah. And so when I came to Zen, I heard talking about all this kind of thing, I, I think it, I, it sounds familiar to me, but I don't understand, I don't, I don't relate to, I don't concretize that to my experience. But there's power in what you've just said, there's a whole lot of power in what you've just said, because I think it's important at the VSA that we remember that sociology is not the, it cannot be relegated to sociologists. Mm -hmm. That there are people who understand um, sociological um, terms, concepts, ideas, even if they're not familiar with the exact language that we're using in the VSA, exactly. right? That people are having really rich sociological uh, conversations at barbershops, in churches, at mosques, mm -hmm. all the time about the nature of inequality, mm -hmm. right? That mirrors and sometimes exceeds what we're um, engaging in here at the BSA, mm -hmm. right? But the language we're using for it is very, very specific. Mm -hmm. um, it's also curious that you bring up the contrast between the um, uh, being in corporate versus being on the street because that is so, in some respects, central to the, the project on black cultural capital. Mm -hmm. When Prudence Carter advanced the work, she was trying to get us to understand non-dominant cultural capital. What works for young people outside of schools mm -hmm. that procures for them a measure of power and status and significance that schools undermine as being important for young people and their identities. Nicola Rollett then shifted and looked at dominant forms of black cultural capital. When you go into corporate, what are the more formalized ways of signaling your blackness where in, in some respects you don't have to, your, your middle class identity doesn't have to uh, jettison your racial and ethnic, uh, the strength of your racial and ethnic identity, mm -hmm. right? And so these two variants of non-dominant and dominant cultural capital are important for us to understand because they help us to push against the deficit perspectives in relation to black and brown young people. And it contextualizes it as well. Mm -hmm. Because we are received so differently in different spaces, yes. obviously there's gonna be different forms of cultural capital. That's like right. I know mm -hmm. the certain spaces that I will get more capital, whether they're predominantly black spaces, white spaces, or whatever, like there's mm -hmm. there's Absolutely, and it, it, it helps us to understand that really part of the power that cultural capital has is the legitimacy it receives in a specific social field. So the power you have of you know stating where you got your degree from, um, the power that has in corporate, it's not going to have the same power in a local youth environment where you're hanging out with young people necessarily on the streets, right? Yeah. And vice versa, the same power that you have among young people in terms of your trainers, as you mentioned before, etc., might not have the same power in corporate. It means that young people have different capital sets, and it means that cultural sociologists, sociologists of education, need to be much more ambidextrous or supple in their analyses when thinking about young people from varying backgrounds. That is not because you don't have this doesn't mean you don't have anything. Exactly. Right, and that's the analysis that's been advanced, and that's precisely what I'm pushing back against. So, the the first piece I published right out of my PhD um, was um, in the BSA journal Sociology, and I could have easily sent it to other journals that I really, really love, ER, ethnic and racial studies, for instance. But I wanted to speak to mainstream sociology. I wanted to if at all possible, shift the frame of reference and, and really 
demonstrate the import of deep archival analyses in challenging dominant deficit perspectives. Deficit perspective not about black and brown young people, but about white sociologists. Yeah. Who are it's doing about this them. work. It's about who, absolutely. About who yeah, apply, yeah, yeah. who are not cognizant of their racial the racial blind spots in their class analyses. Mm -hmm. Right? That's part of what I wanted to center. And it's been an ongoing project. So following that, I um another paper that came up was Cultural Capital as Whiteness, um, mm -hmm. where um, uh, one of the most popular um, papers on cultural capital is written by um, Tara Yoso, where she's applying uh, critical race analysis to um, capital, where she's saying, she's raising the question whose culture has capital? And she denotes a whole range of capital sets that are possible um, and that are mobilized in uh, minoritized communities. And part of the, the argument at this conference was, you know, a number of people were saying, you know, that's not really Bolivian analysis. You know, she's not talking about habitus. She's not talking about field. How can you talk about capital unless you're talking about habitus and field? Yeah. <laughs> right? And don't get me wrong, those are, you know, those are important, worthy critiques, but they also missed the critique that Yosa was doing something that Bolivians had not done. Yeah. She was offering an asset-based analysis. And they're deflecting. Precisely. Yeah. What's really interesting, I think, about even talking about black capitalism and Tiso bringing up the corporate and street life, even the corporate cultural capitals that you will have, would you say that they're still contest, contest they can be contested mm -hmm. because of race? Absolutely. And that's what I feel like, as Absolutely. much as I, it's really important, when I'm doing work with, with whether it's on racism, whether it's on people that haven't got as much power, like I'm talking about this to people that do have power, I have power to be in this space to talk about it. But my cultural capital is still, it's, it, it will be contested. It's not necessarily, it, it's not white still. Like, mm -hmm. as much as I've got this, people can still, people will still question it because of how I'm being received in this white space. Is that, is that, is that make? Yeah, but the institutional properties, for instance, like where you get your degree, yeah. Much of that has been legitimated and would be legitimated okay. by a predominantly white audience. You see okay. what I mean? Okay. Um, similarly, those who are coming from corporate um, may have some resources that people, you know, young people in different contexts may recognize. So mm -hmm. I think I'm just trying to add some nuance to the conversation, okay. right? By saying that it needs to yeah. be context specific. We need to interrogate what it is we mean by culture, whose culture matters, whose culture is coded in cultural capital. Right? How is whiteness? How does whiteness influence the career of the concept? These are questions I want for us to entertain. As I'm getting too passionate. No, it's great. I'm trying to get no us to entertain as, as a field, and I'm trying to push it theoretically. The theory part is missing because I know I understand it from my lived experience. Yeah. So I'm going through this, and I don't really understand what it is. I'm building upon stuff, and I'm learning. So the street stuff, you have it down pat. This is what I do. But when I made that shift into the academia or into like the corporate world, I'm like, well calling someone an idiot, it's not, it's, not, it's not really working for me. I don't know how to kind of navigate this world. Mm -hmm. Because the culture I've accumulated so far, in the street life, it works for me. I know how it works. Mm -hmm. But this new world I'm in, I don't understand, and there's no, kind of, there's no book. And when I speak to other guys, they don't really tell you the secrets of how to navigate. So it's a learned experience. And sometimes it's a painful experience. Uh -huh. And it's the same, I think, moving into academic spaces as well, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. it's a whole new set of rules. <laughs> <laughs> Many of us in, um, experience significant displacement. And I think throughout all the work I've done, I've really come to appreciate why it's important to listen to young people. <laughs> like I'm not just talking about you know recording, doing interviews with them, and hearing what they have to say for the purpose of this. I mean, actively listen to them. I mean, what youth workers do, <laughs> actively listen to young people, has proved to be incredibly powerful because I think. In the time I spent in schools, I realized that a lot of young people have a countercultural political imagination that gets sidelined in their schools. 
So what I noticed is that, that as well. exactly yeah, yeah. it gets beat out of them in the schools. Mm. And they're calling for a different world, a different system, a different they have a different political imagination. So let me be even more concrete about that. When I went into the school, I did my research in South London, I noticed that the teachers would sometimes celebrate or praise the black middle class young people because they had a set of dominant cultural capital sets that were recognizable and appreciated by the white teachers and then used uh, uh, one student's ability to know about uh, Bach and Shakespeare to play classical music. Let's use that to play classical music to then demean the other black kids who weren't able to do it. Like, look, this is not about race. You know, if your friend can do it, why can't you do it? And what I saw consistently was that the black middle class students utilized their class privilege in defense of the black working classes to challenge the nature of these crude comparisons that were being drawn. What that's suggesting to me is that we need more cross-class alliances within the black community, mm -hmm. within minoritized community, in order to unsettle and unseat forms of inequality that seek to divide us for the purposes of keeping the status quo. That for me was significant and something I would have never expected, right? But that cross racialized cross-class analysis is a different political imagination. And it's one that um, I think a lot of adults and policymakers need to listen to. You've been listening to Survivor Society at the BSA, and we've been really pleased to have John Wallace uh, teach us. I hope you will have me back at some point. <laughs> yeah, definitely, it's we will back. definitely be good back. back. Um, yeah, so we'll be back with some more interviews from the BSA, so yeah, tune into those.